Alright, man, welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 254. Jason Lingren is with me, and we're kind of very honored to have Michael A. Hoffman II, also known as Michael Hoffman. For people who have followed on recently, you will understand that he was a co-contributor to the also important key handing toolbox called King Kill 33. Welcome, Jason. Good morning, Crow. So I finally got an email uh, after we did the episode with Alana Freeland, who knew Mr. Hoffman, um, and I got an email back, corresponded for a while, and he offered to give us an hour, which I was thrilled to get an hour from him because he is writing a sequel to the other all-important text that he wrote on his own called Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare, which incidentally is at Amazon and other booksellers. But be careful because... Since I've been talking about Michael Hoffman, people have actually sent me, this is a paperback book uh, with a price tag of $900 on it. You should be able to pick up that book for in the neighborhood of 10 bucks, just so people know. That's a new a new copy, but don't be fooled into thinking by book purveyors that you can only shell out near a grand for this stuff. And I see that on other important texts, but probably we should take a minute to clue people in to why Mr. Hoffman is important. Right. Now, he is considered, of course, a conspiracy writer, but he does tons of other stuff, mostly with history and things like that. So just so folks know that they're looking at the right person, a quick official bio on him says, Michael Hoffman is an independent scholar and the author of 10 books of history and literature, three of which have been published overseas in French and Japanese translation. He studied political science and history under Faiz Abu Jaber at the State University of New York at Oswego and at Hobart College under Francis J.M. O'Laughlin. A former reporter for the New York Borough of the Associated Press, Mr. Hoffman is the editor of Revisionist History Newsletter. All right, so if you are looking to see if you're looking at the right Michael Hoffman, that is him. That's right off of the Amazon page on him. He's an older gentleman in his 60s, we do believe. And, well, there's a lot of other Michael Hoffmans. That's a common enough name, so we want to make sure we get that part clear. But has used both names, as we stated earlier, just to make it really clear, either just Michael Hoffman or Michael A. Hoffman II. Yeah, I take a little bit of umbrage with the idea, like if you go to Wikipedia and look him up, they're going to call him an anti-Semite. They're going to say all kinds of nasty things about this man. And I take umbrage with it. He's as well-researched as anything I have ever run into, considering that he's not going with the mainstream. He's not re- you know, just regurgitating what a textbook says. He's doing his own research, and he's doing it diligently. Um, other texts, besides the one we're going to zero in on, Hour 2, when we have Mr. Hoffman, is, um, well, that the, the, one of the main texts there will be King Kill 33. And I will say again, what Mr. Downard and Mr. Hoffman laid down there, we may not even have known by now. And when they put it out all those decades ago, it was already being removed from shelves and hidden away. But the other important text, if you're going to choose two, go to revisionisthistory.org and score an original version of King Kill 33, which, by the way, a few weeks ago, um, I couldn't get an original, all-inclusive version of King Kill. Um, so now that we know Mr. Hoffman, turns out he's still got on offer original, uncut versions of King Kill. And what we found is the PDF online are not complete, and some of them have even been jacked around and messed with. But the other book that's critically important is Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare by Michael Hoffman. You will see he's using Michael Hoffman as he goes and tries to do a bit more mainstream publishing. But as far as I know, in that 
book, he's the only person of import that covered the fact that a black obelisk showed up in Seattle on uh, September 11, 2001. Are you following the thread here? We have 2001. People who know numbers know that's 21. They know it's the idea of blackjack. We're coming into the, the year that's going to end in 21. Um, and all these things have a common thread. And so this black obelisk, which is the spitting image of the 2001 Kubrick movie, Black Obelisk, shows up in Seattle. And meanwhile, there's a hotel at Ground Zero, which is admittedly copying the black obelisk. How can, how, how can it be? that Mr. Hoffman is the only person that covered this. But there's a few other texts here that you might take an interest in. They were white and they were slaves. The untold history of the enslavement of whites in early America. Now, this book is a tome, and I read it, and the research is above and beyond. It's all about the Vatican, and it gives an inside view of how the Vatican was actually set up and what happened running into the Renaissance. It's called the Occult Renaissance Church of Rome. That is a must-read for people who want to know things. Uh, he wrote another book called Usury in, Christian, in Christendom, The Mortal Sin That Was and Now Is Not. For those who don't know, usury is lending money at interest. It used to be stated that any interest was usury. By the time I was young, it was about 3%, I think, as most people know. Wait for it, 33%. You can find cards with 33% usury, but in Christianity, before the Vatican went holy south, they used to protect Christians from the idea of usury. Um, as a matter of fact, you can pick up Dante's Inferno and read what Dante has to say about a usurer. He's in one of the rings of hell meeting a usurer, and he's being sodomized. That's how it used to be with usury. Now it's like part and parcel of our existence. And one of the main banes, uh, as a matter of fact, his work on usury will open your eyes to how we got to where we are, because that's a big part of it. And lastly, how many people are always asking me to cover Hitler? He did a book entitled Adolf Hitler, Enemy of the German People. And by the way, that title may not be implying what you think it implies. And just to give a heads up, here's maybe the one thing Anyone who really wants to know something about World War II should understand. Before, Germany had no central bank. After, Germany had a central bank. There's all that. But is there anything else you want to add before we start to kind of try to illustrate the importance of what was done with King Kill 33? Well, I think we should get into what exactly transpired, who Michael was in the 70s, I believe it was, uh, when he was hanging out with Downard. He, he was a truth seeker, to put it in a very basic kind of way. And he said that he was quite influenced by Mr. Downard and just the way he did things and how he would go on later to write so much material to try and bring light to dark subjects. Yeah. And not only that, we talked to him and you'll hear an hour or two, I, I say something to the effect of, you're the only person I know that knew Downard. Um, he claims there were others, but he's the only connection that I have where I'm not getting third-hand or fourth-hand information. I'm getting first-hand information, and more than anything, we had Lana Freeland on because she actually edited, so edited some of the downward work, and now we have Michael Hoffman, who actually, I almost said co-conspired. <laughs> I, I got to get off this Wikipedia page. He, he's, he actually helped write King Kill 33, which is the seminal groundbreaking work. Now, here's the thing that we should probably try to illustrate. In all the work Jason and I have done, we've pointed out a lot of places. 
where no death has occurred, yet it was implied. Here's the way I see this shaking out. I stand on the shoulders of people like Downard, like Hoffman, on certain subjects that we cover. I don't know. Um, I, I suppose Mr. Hoffman would probably say he's standing on the shoulders of Downard because that was all firsthand from him. Someone's going to come along long after I'm gone and Jace is gone. They're going to stand on our shoulders and take what we did, hopefully, further. Many of the things that we pointed out are not illustrated in these texts, but the whole game plan, that tessellated black and white game board, every rule, every little method, every trick, every little spell, it's pointed out how it's done. But what's more is it shows you how to think when you see nonsense go on in this world. If you want to get down in the gutter and understand why it's nonsense, this is the toolbox that'll show you how to do it. If you're like me, after you understand that's nonsense, that you, you don't need to anymore. You instantly glance at it, you understand it's a put up, and you walk on with your life. But there's a really critical thing that was pointed out all this time ago in the late 80s about the alchemical process that was being pulled over all our eyes. It starts with the prematuria idea from alchemy, and then it goes into the killing of the king, which was the JFK skit. And then it closes out with where we are all living right now, revelation of method. Now, when most people hear revelation of method, they say, oh, good, we get to hear all these things we were all guessing at. And what? No, no, no. What revelation of method is, is it's built into the original lie. And by the time revelation of method happens, it's been introduced so sneakily that they get away with it all. They collect your tacit permission on things like 9-11, on things like JFK, where I doubt if anyone would readily say, yeah, I'm fine with that. But nonetheless, the way revelation of method is laid down, in their minds, they're collecting your permission for having done the crime and then admitted to it and had no one stand up in any meaningful way to say, what the hell? Did I drop anything there? No, that sounds great. And I just found a very good quote to give you an idea of what kind of person Michael Hoffman is. Check this out. Even as he dances to the tune of the elite managers of human behavior, the modern man scoffs with a great derision at the idea of the existence and operation of a technology of mass mind control emanating from media and government. Modern man is much too smart to believe anything as superstitious as that. Modern man is the ideal hypnotic subject puffed up on the idea that he is the crown of creation. He vehemently denies the power of the hypnotist's control over him as his head bobs up and down on a string. Now, I don't know when that is from, but oh my God, <laughs> is he nailing it? Yeah, it's. it gets to a point where you understand that there's no system. If it's even adjacent to commerce in our world, it's been co-opted. And it's been co-opted in a way that will ensure that people on top remain on top and the people on the bottom continue to sink. And that is every system. And that includes organized religions, by the way, which a large part of Mr. Hoffman's writing is about the Vatican to show you factually what was done there. Jason and I have done episodes to kind of show you how Rome was taken down, how it morphed into Mithraism, how that morphed into the Vatican and how the people you think set up the Vatican are not the people who set up the Vatican. But when we get down to what's actually going on here, I always wonder, and I don't think I'll ever have an answer, if the work that was done in King Kill 33 by Mr. Hoffman and Mr. Downard, James Shelby Downard, 
showed you the tools of how names and places and geographical locations and the roads that connect them and the lines of latitude and longitude all matter in this psychological psychodrama, as Mr. Hoffman likes to call it, if that was outed back in the 80s, has it led to what we're now uncovering where what's called the language of the birds or the green language or phonetic language, if, if that was created as a further effort to obfuscate what was going on because men like Hoffman and Downard outed them, showed them how they were hiding their spells, showed you how they were casting their spells. So now we're up to a point all these decades later where we've got to re- relearn how to read a word, how to take a word apart, how to understand each part of that word, both phonetically, sounds like, is like, etymologically, came from here, meant this back in the day, down to prefix, suffix, root, six ways to Sunday. If you are not looking at language in this way, you're being fooled. And this is critically important for people who want to do things like read the Bible as literal text, because I got news for you. We know where these texts came from, and we know what was omitted to some degree, and we know how they were carefully worded in other places, but the truth is still there if you have eyes to see it. The problem is, up until recently, only people who could see it were initiated people, but not so fast initiated people. We're not idiots, and we're catching up to you. But that's that's my question, Jason. Was this kind of green language and heavy use before men like Hoffman and Downard, or is it just now that we're catching up? I don't know the answer, but we are catching up. Right. I strongly suspect we're catching up. I have a hard time believing that bad guys weren't doing bad things long before the 20th century. Well, we can show all day long that this has been going on for hundreds of years, the tee-up. And that brings on all kinds of questions in itself. Like, if you were a power player, a dark agent, as I guess I'll refer to them, in the early 1800s, why the hell would you be wasting your whole life teeing up for a thing that's not going to happen until 2001 and then go nuclear, to use a term that doesn't exist, in 2020? Why would you bother? And that opens up a whole bag of worms. Um, and that, too, probably relates to the old hermetic ideas of vibration, correspondence, the life rhythm. It goes on and on. But we're catching up. It's not going to be too much longer if we can maintain what we've got going on, that we will be understanding much more fully how all this was implemented. But make no mistake, this takeover has been going on for hundreds of years, minimally. Well, you know, the one thing I haven't seen anyone really do any work on, and I don't know how easy this would be to do, but what about looking into writings from the 19th century to see if there are any tee-ups in mainstream media, such as the American Civil War and getting into the early 20th century, like with the Great War, World War One. What about the Russian Revolution, like all these things that had major impacts on worldwide society. Were they laced into mainstream releases at the time? I got to wonder. At this point, for me, it's pretty clear that the people we think are all powerful are basically just slaves to another thing. And that other thing, which we haven't taken head on, and we might at some point, if the time seems right, we'll take on. But two of the recent law guests brought up this very dark kind of seedy underside of what's actually driving this. And I could ask the question, you know, we always kind of act like the people in charge. Why aren't they like normal human beings? Why don't they care when they see suffering? Why do they cause suffering? What's different about them? And the, the open up the can pop out the answer response is, oh, well, they've been inbred for Lord knows how many generations. And that may well be part of it, but there's something more. 
Because when you start destroying environments and making places that are habitable to life, almost inhabitable to life, something else is going on. Why would any human being be able to take part in that? And we may go down these roads, but the tee up for all this knowing in my mind for me personally uh, is King Kill 33. And again, get your butt over to revisionisthistory.org and get copies of these and save them. When you buy a copy, make some copies. Make sure they're safe. These are the things that are going to disappear. As a matter of fact, if you go to Amazon right now, I don't remember the name of the book, Jason, but you and I both searched it. Um, it's one with a cartoon image of James Shelby Downard's face. I think it's a Palfrey text who was the editor who tried to get, or the uh, publisher who tried to get all this material out. That book was recently going for 600 dollars and it relates to king kill it has a little bit of firsthand information in it but it's only a couple hundred pages at best it's a thin book um and already on amazon the price of that has been jacked up to hundreds of dollars ensuring that it's out of reach because how many people are going to pony up that kind of cash as a matter of fact it got to the point where i wanted it and i i was couldn't pony up that kind of cash when it got down under 200 when i saw in one place i snapped it up just so i would know and these are the texts that I hold tight. And I will make sure that when I'm checking out that those texts get to someone who will keep them alive. I can't remember the name of the text. Apocalypse culture. Yeah, that's it. Apocalypse culture. And then there's, is wait a minute, I'm getting confused. Is that the downward bio or is that the one with the cartoon face on it? Well, the one that's got King Kill in it originally from 1987 is called Apocalypse Culture. I'm going to look it up right now so I don't mess it up. All I got to do is search downward. Okay, James Shelby Downard's Mystical War. And so that is a pseudonym. I think, if I'm not mistaken, Adam Palfrey is the person who actually published Carnival of Life and Death is the biography of James Shelby Downard, and it'll spin your head sideways. You'll get to the point where you're reading that thinking, is there any way this happened? Is there any way any of this happened? And then you get to King Kill. And if you're like me, you prove it. By the time Jason and I got to the nonsensical uh, Mandalay Bay nonsense, we saw once again tons of minds getting sucked into the fake death. And so we started taking it apart. We were working with a guy who helped us hook it up to Macbeth, which is done in King Kill. And that is how not only did I know it was fake, I could take it so much further because I had read King Kill. And I, we tied it to, I don't know, act one, scene one, whatever it is, where they're in a desert and the three witches are talking to their demon in Macbeth. The demon's name is Paddock. Hint, hint, hint. The fake shooter's name is Paddock. And that's when they took out my YouTube channel. But in the carnival of life and death was supposed to be a biography of James Shelby Downard's entire life. It only makes it to age 30. But here's the exciting part. In hour two, when we've got Mr. Hoffman in here, um, because we can't run that anywhere, but for members, if we do, Lord knows what follows, we get hit for a lot less these days. Jason asks Mr. Hoffman, is there any James Shelby Downard text? And it turns out a big box with thousands of documents was sent to Michael Hoffman on the death of James Shelby Downard. So there might be more James Shelby Downard material. And I've always hoped that since Carnival of Life and Death, the biography only goes to age 30. I was hoping that more of that biography had been written, but I guess we'll just have to wait and see because it didn't, he answered you, but it didn't sound to me like it was certain things were coming. Yeah, it was kind of a, it was an answer, but it was a non-answer, I guess you could say. But here's the thing, that was probably for good reason. Goodness only knows what's in there and what he doesn't want to talk about. 
Well, it's part of it sounded almost like a promise, like, yes, there's more material here. But among the people who have been censored, these guys have been putting up with it since like the 80s or the 90s. And now Jason and I just run a thing on law where we're talking about things that are literally in a law book somewhere and we get pinged for it to the point where we just run things on my private site at this point. We're not harming anyone. We're not afraid of, of being accused of harming anyone, but look at the level of censorship. Just trying to inform people of their rights now is off the table on social media. And so when you start to think of works like King Kill, works like the other one I mentioned by Michael Hoffman, these are critical keys that we need to protect, get copies of and protect because if things go much further south than they have, there may come a day when it's impossible to get these things. So let's take a minute to talk about Michael A. Hoffman, the second book, Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare. There's actually, you know, I ha I've read this. This is like must read material for me. And it's like the only place you can go to find what's in here. But if I'm not mistaken, because I started going through this again right before we had Mr. Hoffman on and then in the in the preface which I think is written in 95. I hope I'm getting these numbers right. He starts talking about AIDS and things, taking it apart. And he actually makes the estimation that there will be a plague uh, in the future that plays from the beginning points of AIDS. And I mean, 95, look where we are, look where we are. And so I'll just give you the, I'm on Amazon right here looking at this title from 007 to 2001, from Dealey Plaza to the Apollo moon flight. From the barrel of a bulldog, 44 caliber, to the corridors of the pyramids of Sirius. From the recent symbolism of Jack the Rick Ripper, symbolism of Jack the Ripper, to public school symbolism, the first atomic bomb blast, this work illuminates the crimes and command ideology of the Masonic cryptography, where ground zero meets zero hour in the bestial cubicle of ritual murder, human alchemy, and demonic invasion. That's all I'll lift from there because I don't want to infringe on anyone's copyright, but this barely scratches the surface of what's on offer in this book. And when you understand that he was co-author of King Kill 33, he not only knows all the keys that are being handed out, but he knows that I'm at a much deeper level. And so when he comes along with this book, how is it that he's the only guy that deigned to mention that a black obelisk showed up on 9-11 in Seattle. How can that be? It, it kind of boggles the mind. So let's get into, let's see, I think this is 1989 it was originally published. Let me double check real quick here. Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare by Michael A. Hoffman II. Original printing, yeah, 1989, then 1992. It says previously titled Secrets of Masonic Mind Control. So it looks like he updated it as time went on. But let's talk about some of the subjects here. These are things that we get into. Nature and Gnosis, Divine Creation is Counterfeit, Flattery for the First Principle of Mind Control, Satan is the Ape of God, Inducing the Double Mind, Masonic Double Mind in Vatican to Catholicism. I mean, these are all things that you and I have gotten into over the years. Yeah, it's just that the level of research and the correspondence of things that are really happening in the world is where someone who wants to be an actual real journalist, which I don't know how long ago in my life real journalism died, but it was a hell of a long time ago. Decades. <laughs> yeah, this man's doing real research. And, you know, when you read some of the work he's done on the Vatican, it staggers to think someone went not, not just current research, but going all the way back to the supposed Renaissance and other timelines we've been handed and pulling the names and actually identifying 
the family names of who were pulling the strings and leading us down the garden path. In some of his work, it's a bit astonishing because he takes the point that Catholicism has something to benefit the world, but the Vatican, sour to the core. So it's an interesting juxtaposition. But no matter what you accept or don't accept, the level of research and the accuracy of what's being put in front of you, it holds up. It holds up to scrutiny. This section right here, mind control and the revelation of the method, well, that's worth your cost of admission right there. Yeah, because we're, we're here. This is what's happening now. You know, a few days ago, I got an email from Mr. Hoffman right before we were going to record the hour that's in hour two. And he, he said, um, welcome to the anniversary of the blackjack. And I get this email on 9-11 in 2020. And there it was, man. It's like another person that speaks English. He didn't write anything more than that to me. And I instantly understood 2001, the movie removed the zeros. It's 21, 2001, the year removed the zeros. It's 21. What's gone on all this year. And the fact that next year, when we get to January is 21, I knew instantly the blackjack that he was referring to, but so much more. And how is it that he could write such a simple one line thing to me and have communicated so much? And it goes to show what's on offer here, because I'm guessing not too many people in the world would have received that email and been able to understand what was being communicated. And I know we're always getting new listeners, so let me remind everyone, if they aren't aware, that in the original 2001 story, the novel that Arthur C. Clarke wrote at the same time as Stanley Kubrick doing the movie, they did not go to Jupiter. They went to Saturn. Of course, and you should tell them to, do you remember enough about the obelisk to give the name of it and all that? The monolith? Yeah, the original name from the original work was the, not the overseer, it was something with the same connotation as the overseer or the overlord. Maybe it was the overlord, I don't recall, but that was the original name of the black obelisk. Now, if you remember in the movie 2001, what they're doing is they're setting the stage for Darwinian drivel to convince you that you're just an ape. There's nothing divine about you, you human being. You're just a stupid monkey. That's what 2001 opens up doing. So all these kind of monkey men are living peacefully. And then this obelisk shows up, the overlord. I don't know if I've got that name right, but the connotation is correct. So that's why I'm using it. And so what it does is it speeds them on their evolution. You know what the damn evolution is? Uh, right after the monolith shows up, now the monkey men are grabbing bones and beating each other to death and eating meat. And by the way, when he throws the bone in the air, it fast forwards in time and the bone becomes a spaceship. That's the kind of mental wizardry that Hollywood's been engaged in. Those opening scenes completely about nonsensical, provably untrue Darwinism and man's portion here. And then the idea that this outside source, which again gets hidden because as Jason pointed, it's not coming from Jupiter, jovial Jupiter. No, 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 no. It's coming from the black cube of Saturn, lead being its metal, the metal that blocks all light. So the original story is telling the tale that's then hidden. And then let's ask the question. So Millennium Hilton or whatever the hell the name of the hotel is at Ground Zero, what's the reason you made that massive multi, multi, multi-story hotel uh, a duplicate of the black monolith at Ground Zero? Can you clue us in to why you did that? Because we're about to ask how the hell did a blast monolith show up on 2001, 9-11, and nobody covered it? We're starting to catch up with the evil game that's been afoot here, but do you recall anything more about the original text? Well, here's the thing I was just thinking of. 
I read that in high school, so that would have been late 80s, uh, early 90s. I graduated in 91, so it would have been before that. I wonder if it's been changed since then, because 2010 Odyssey 2, 2061 Odyssey 3, and I think there was 3001 was the last one before Arthur C. Clarke passed away. They all stuck with the Jupiter narrative that the movie did. So I wonder if there were edits done to the 2001 novel to make it Jupiter. Well, here's the thing. Uh, Here's the story we get told, or one of the stories. Kubrick claimed that it was always Saturn. They wanted to use Saturn, but it was too hard to do the special effects for Saturn. That's the claim, why they went to Jupiter. Yes, that's the official claim, but I find that hard to believe. Yeah, knowing the sky clock as we do now, I'm calling Poppy and Cock all day long. We understand what's going on here. We understand what's getting slid under. We understand that 2001 is a tee-up to get technology and film shooting methods in place so that you can do the fake moon landing. We get that it's all encoded for this thing that's not even going to happen until decades later called the year 2001. We get everything that's encoded in it, and we get more than anything how things are obfuscated. And when you take the original text and they're talking about Saturn, we understand. So you can make any claim you want, you know, oh, we couldn't make rings for the movie. Yeah, well, whatever. Uh, not buying. We understand what's being communicated here. It's the Saturnian ideas, but here's the rub. Even in the sky clock ideas, each one of the so-called luminaries has a, a duality to it. It's like a coin. There's a head and a tail. There's a good light and a dark. There's a man and a woman. There's a sun and a moon. This duality is everywhere. But what we see in all this is the plucking out of one aspect, fractioning down the complete sky clock, which could be viewed as holistic. This holistically demonstrates all the things that human beings can be influenced by, not just human beings, everything here. Why are they just harping out this black cube idea, this binding idea? Why is that in everything? And and what you're seeing is the leveraging of one particular aspect and this is unfortunate too because when people catch on they think i don't like saturn i don't you know all these things they're against me they're evil and what they're not understanding is no they're making it evil they're taking the hatchet and instead of carving a chair with the hatchet they're doing some murder there's the allegory they could have done something beneficial they've chosen not to but i think people need to understand that it is so heavily weighted saturn-esque solar-esque, moon-esque. It's almost like the opposing forces that are trying to take over the world right now. Here's their holy trinity, the sun, the moon, and Saturn. I'm not even kidding. If you hold that in mind and think about that idea and then reflect back, you might find some actual value there. But these things have been going on for longer than I've been alive. And I'm, I'm going to ask, Jason, does, is there anyone that doesn't realize what the movie 2001 was doing at the time? And by the way, The filming was beautiful, the special effects were beautiful, but the movie was tedious as a mofo, and the ending was so kind of, I need to pop some LSD to even understand what just happened, and it was held up as the greatest movie of all time. You know, it's, you can just see the system propagating the system. Well, once again, I can say that the novel was very different, the ending especially in the novel compared to the film. It wasn't like this great big acid trip. Now, I don't know what Kubrick was thinking, if he just wanted to show off some nifty special effects because it was groundbreaking for the time. But the end actually makes sense in the novel compared to just watching it in the film. It's a Stargate. The monolith is a Stargate that opens. David Bowman goes through, and it shows him passing through all of these 
uh, like an alien graveyard of spaceships, like seeing where the whatever the aliens are supposed to be, where they came from and all that kind of thing. And then he ends up in this room and he's kind of stretched out through time, I guess you could say, where he's seeing the past, the present, the future. He lives out his life as a mortal man in this other place and then is reborn or is illuminated and transformed into what they're calling the star child, which of course has its own (laughs) big old connotation with it. You got a lot more out of that than me. I was still trying to figure out what kind of mushrooms would help me understand. Yeah, I mean, I follow what you're laying down there, but there's more. If I remember correctly, and I don't know if I am, they harp on the moon of Jupiter called Io, don't they? Io, and in the novel, it's Iapetus is where the monolith is floating around. So the reason that gets pulled, I was just doing some more research. We may have a guest on who's doing a really interesting job with the idea of green language, bird language, phonetic, taking words apart phonetically so you can understand how the inverse brethren are doing all this black magic. Uh, Io will relate, I suspect. I'd have to take another look, but I'm reasonably sure Io will relate back to Saturn uh, in name and principle. Let's just jump into a couple of the ideas that they start to water down from the original Arthur C. Clarke work. I maintain that it's a word like overlord that later becomes sentinel to refer to the black obelisk, which is clearly an allegory for the black cube, the Saturnian idea. But uh, do you remember one of the monkey men becomes the first to be enlightened? Do you remember anything about that? Yeah, he actually had a name in the novel, and it was Moonwatcher. So, <laughs> and of course, where's the other monolith? It's in the Tycho lunar crater on the moon. That's where they find it. I don't know if it's supposed to be in 2001. Or no, it takes years for them to get there. So I guess it was discovered in the 90s, right? Right. So there's the idea that I was putting out this phony trinity, the sun, the moon, and Saturn. So one of the fake black cubes is on Earth. The other one gets found on the moon. The one monkey man to reach enlightenment is called Moon Watcher. Everyone following the thread here? Because Moon has to do with mind, not just death and rebirth and ideas like this. It has to do with mind. And our money, for that matter, is leveraging off Moon ideas. But think of, if you don't think I'm telling you true here, think of ideas like lunacy. What's that have to do with? That's all about mind. Being a lunatic, it gets portrayed over and over and over. But the original, when you start to learn how to phonetically take apart words, and it is not easy. It's a lot of work. You got to do the etymology. You got to go across cultures. You will find out that moon, mon, M-O-N, M-I-N, the predecessor to mind there, all relates to the moon. So you can see what's going on here. This, These are the initiated adepts putting all their little code in while they're affecting all of our subconsciouses. But like I've said, we're catching up now. We're not the little dummies that we once were because we thought we could trust people. We've grown up a little and we realize that we can't trust authority anymore. So now we're questioning. But there it is. The black cube idea is being encoded. The original term for that thing that forces a violent evolution in the movie is allegory for the black cube. Of course, it shows up on the moon, which is found, I don't know, decades and decades, millennia later, however long, from the monkey men to the spacemen. And in the original storyline, which gets dropped out of the movie, Moonwatcher is the first monkey to reach enlightenment. It's all encoded. And it's all encoded to this kind of dark trinity, this false construct of the misuse of the moon, the sun, and Saturn, the singling out of these three ideas. But Saturn has, as far back as we can see, been used. That's why everybody wears black in the church. Why are those dudes wearing black and a collar? Remember our our mystical world of color? All the things that we could tell you about the vibrational rates of color 
in every single example, as far back as we can go, black always means when you're adding black to a culture, moving away from spirituality. And when you get to jet black, the absence of all other colors, seven colors being the kind of bedrock that this is all built on. And here we have all our holy men who are going to come out and teach us wearing black. Here we have all our judges wearing black. And by the way, some of those holy men are wearing collars. Who's their master? Well, I know who their master is. And I know better than to fall for the trap that's been set. But that's for another episode. So where would you like to go from here, Jason? Well, let's uh, finish the whole 2001 thing off on the point that you always make about they show the moon before death. Well, <laughs> Moon Watcher gets illuminated and is smashing the crap out of his fellow ape men. And what are they showing, of course? And what is his name? <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, it's almost like they're alluding to a trap that we haven't quite deciphered. But we know certainly from Hollywood's point of view, it's always been this. And now they're more careful that they show it. Back in the 50s and the 40s, they showed this so often openly, like Clark Gable movies and stuff. This is the way it goes. Somebody gets killed, camera pans up to the moon, and a baby is born. Bang, bang, bang. All the time. Um, drawing the occult lines. But it almost implies that there's some kind of a trap when you start to put the black cube overlord down here and all the things that follow because they were peaceable and they were all vegetarian and then all of a sudden they're beating the hell out of each other and peccaries killing things and eating meat and the obelisk is the black obelisk is responsible for all this and again that is the saturnian idea the negative saturnian idea well again i guess since we're starting to run low on time here we can talk about how Mr. Hoffman was influenced by Mr. Downard and why Mr. Downard lived the way he did and what he did to try and understand the mysteries that he was exploring. Right. Well, think of, let's use a modern day reference that I, that I tried to use recently, but I've had a little more time to think of it. Does everyone know that movie called Yesterday? It's about Beatles music mostly. And the idea is, is that for 12 minutes, one, two, three, count the Trinity, 12 minutes, one and two is three. The entire world is reset. I think it's 12 seconds, actually. For some reason, there's three people, count them, one, two, three, who can remember what came before the reset. One of these guys is going to go out to do the Beatles tunes. But you don't think that that movie coming out in 2019 is allegory for the reset that we're seeing now? And it's interesting to see how these things are received. Because these are paving the way subconsciously for everything we see. And there was another point I wanted to make about the Yesterday movie, but it just slipped my mind, Jason. Well, that's a very interesting uh, story in itself. And it shows how certain aspects of society were very different with the Beatles being removed. Kind of pointing to the fact of how important in the scheme of things that the Beatles as an icon, I guess you could say, as a symbol of a whole lot of what the 60s were about. And with them being removed, things went a very different way. Oh, I, I remember now. So James Shelby Downard showed us why places, mystical toponymy as he called it, places and latitude and longitude matter. In the movie that I was alluding to yesterday, the main character's trying to remember all the Beatles music so he can play, can't remember them. So what does he do? He takes a page from James Shelby Downard to use that mystical, magnetic, animal magnetism, ley lines, magnetic idea. And what's he do? I can't remember this, so I'm going to go back to the physical place, Strawberry Fields, where I've never been. And he goes to a Penny Lane, he goes to a couple places, and then lo and behold, remembers the words you see. Now, when you get into King Kill 33, 
and start to understand. See, that's part of the problem here is they explain to you why the toponymy is important, how you can derive what you can derive. But even when we're talking to Mr. Hoffman and he met James Shelby Downard, he was traveling in an old silver airstream. He always was like almost like a gypsy going to places. And in one of the books I read, when Hoffman and Downard first meet, Downard wants to take them to all these occult places where they are. Well, why is that? Because it is the same space in a different time. Therefore, there are things that can be known from sharing this space where these things went on that there's really no other way to get at. And if you follow through enough of Downard's work on Hoffman's work, you'll understand how Masonic concerns have always put animal magnetism or the idea of magnetism, and that's the moon, ladles and jelly spoons, the, the sun is electric, um, the daughter of that is electromagnetism, that's the moon, we're coming back to mind ideas again, why all that's so important. So there's a section in the Secret Society's book called The Alchemy of Ritual Murder. That seems to have a lot to do with social engineering programming, just a lot of what's been going on, especially with all the false flag shootings and all that. Uh, again, this was from 89, I believe. It looks like these things were set up many, many years ago, and they're kind of using the same playbook over and over and over again. Look at some of the big things that happened as we ran into 2020. Uh, Tarantino puts out a new movie, Once Upon a Time, dot, 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 in Hollywood. Right. And what's he talking about? The damn Manson murders. So you got the nuggets. You see, the media told us, Mr. Tarantino, that people were murdered, killed, butchered, to be clear about it, because I've read all those books. And back in my days when I was studying criminal things in junior college, I was taking criminal classes. One of the books we had to read was the Manson books of the time. They're claiming that people were murdered and you're going to come along with a movie and make it into a myth. And then, by the way, on certain channels on cable, they're going to come along with a Man Manson three-part series about the Manson murders and they're going to call it American Myth Manson. The Nuggets. The Nuggets. Let me tell you something. If someone actually died and family members actually lost loved ones and you, you folks came along and did this, there'd be hell to pay, wouldn't there? Because if my family was butchered in that manner and you come along so blithely to turn it into a myth and entertainment and rewrite how it went down and all the things that they're doing now, it's all a poke in your eye. And the reason it's a poke in your eye is because they think they've got the whole enchilada. I'm convinced of it. But at the same time, this is a house of damn cards. And I know damn well, they're all slaved out. These people are not in charge because if they were at some point, they would come to their human senses and they would be able to appreciate that the nature of a human being is not to harm another human being. And although we do do that, that is not the normal course of things in a day. Even the idea of war and how all this has, has happened. And so if we go back to four or five years ago where I'm putting out episodes called, you know, Moon Manson Woodstock, I'm showing you what led up to 2020. And if you look immediately before 2020, look no further than Hollywood to see the queue up, the tee up, because all the people who are in the know, they know next year the masks are coming out, but this stage just got a lot bigger. It's not masks on a Hollywood stage. Now the whole world is a tessellated game board. And as far as I know, there is no better description. Well, 
that's not true either. There are starting to be equally as important texts that deal with the idea of green language, phonetically taking apart words, using etymology correctly, and what's called bird language. Um, that is also going to pay like dividends, which makes it damn near impossible for these inversive brethren, as they're starting to be called, to pull their black wool over all our eyes. And by the way, if you see someone called in verse, at the very least, you should already be looking at every word backwards, just to give you a clue. Start with the Beatles revolver. There's an interesting one. Yeah, there's so much encoded with the whole Beatles thing. And again, that movie, if you haven't seen it, is a, an interesting watch. It's ugly. It's violent. Uh, it captures the epitome and tugs at the heartstrings for those that us can remember the freedom and the footloose and fancy-free nature of that time period, but then it piles on the, the horrid ugliness that does not accurately reflect the true nature of human beings, though we've all been convinced that human beings are that way because we've all come up with a TV, with a movie, with all these horrendous things that are obviously being staged, but in our subconscious are having an effect till we get to Tarantino. Then it's just a splatterfest or a Mr. Kinu right? We can shoot people in the head every five seconds for two hours in a movie. What do you suppose that does? When, when I was a child, if the adults in the room would have been aware of anyone exposed to something like that, they'd rip down the roof of the movie palace. Let me tell you, um, that would have not been socially acceptable. Now, is there a, you know, junior high person alive that hasn't seen Keanu's head shoot extravaganza or Tarantino's blood gore fest, even to the point where they're making fun of Bruce Lee in, in the uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right? They're showing what a construct it is. And by the way, how does a Chinese guy get a name like Bruce? <laughs> Very carefully. Yeah, exactly. Very carefully. Well, the violence thing, that's yet another example of the frog in the boiling water. They were turning up the violence decade by decade. I mean, what would fly in the 60s would never fly today. Uh, here's a good example that absolutely disgusts me. The old Star Trek is pretty corny, and there's some really good science fiction writing in a lot of it, but generally speaking, it's kind of campy, right? In the modern series, Discovery and Picard, the level of violence is just light years ahead of anything that Star Trek ever would have shown ever. And why is that? Look at the ding-dong that's in charge of Star Trek now. The guy is like a failed writer, and he's taking the notions that were laid down before and just turning it into this modern slugfest that it just never was. Why? Because that's what comes out today, folks. Well, you've got to queue up the minds that are you going to try to get people in authority to go too far. This is part of it. But I almost did an episode. I think it was before you and I were doing them regularly, and I started to backtrack because I remembered there were rules in Hollywood for violence. And I don't remember the years, but I do remember early on, you couldn't show anyone be shot. You could imply that a shot was taken from a gun, and I think you could show someone laying. You couldn't show blood. All these other rules kept going, kept going. Pretty soon, you could show the gun, and then in a separate cut, show the person falling down. And then later, it just kept going and going, and eventually you could show the blood, and then eventually we get to Tarantino, right, where it's a splatter fest. Uh, creep, just a slow creep to chip away at the subconscious morals, because in an actual valid human life, if you never saw a big screen or a TV or a cell phone or Hollywood or any of that stuff, 
would you ever see violence at the level Tarantino or Kinu are bringing us? Uh, I would suggest that you would never, ever be exposed to that kind of violence. And even though your mind is saying it's okay to watch this because it's all staged, there is a psychological effect and pretty soon you become addicted to it. And so what happens is the violence that was okay last decade has to be ramped up to catch the eye of the modern audience. And this is shown again in music videos. That was one thing uh, the second British invasion called MTV showed us. If you'll notice the way things were cut together back in the day, uh, there was slow congruent movement and easy cuts between things. By the time you get up to the early 80s, and the second British invasion called MTV, you can slowly watch how quickly things begin to cut. And what they realized is that the eye patterns and the brain motion associated with watching this kind of editing had the effect they were after. To the point now where half the movies you see is two hours of quick cuts. All right, let's wrap up. Uh, I want to get in with Mr. Hoffman. So uh, I'll say this. Go over to revisionisthistory.org, get yourself King Kill of 33, and make sure it's safe. If you need to make copies, make sure that when you're getting ready to leave this place, it gets handed to someone else. I'm already thinking about what will happen to all the Crow Triple Seven work when, when I'm not here anymore. Uh, luckily, Jason's 10 years younger than me, but I'm already thinking about what about when Jason isn't here anymore. The stuff might matter at some time, depending how things go. And what Michael Hoffman did, what James Shelby Downer did, is they handed us critically important keys that the average mind back in the 80s would have said, this is fiction, this is nonsense, there's no way any of this is true, and I got news for you, it's all provably true, because I've applied it, and I've upped my game. I knew it was fake, but now I can demonstrate it six ways to Sunday if I choose to put on my hip waders and go into the sewage. But uh, that does bring the first hour of episode 254 to a close. When we come back, we're going to have Michael Hoffman in person for a full hour. And I don't know anyone else that's interviewed him any time recently. Um, I, I haven't heard of it because I, if I had, I would have been reaching out to him. So join us on the other side at crow777radio.com and membership will have access to that interview. And I'm not kidding. Two texts that are the toolbox that minimally every mind needs so that they can get beyond taking apart all this fake nonsense all the time and getting their mind drug into the sewer is King Kill 33 and Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare by Michael Hoffman. The first one by Hoffman and Downard, James Shelby Downard. These are the critical texts. And now as we stand on their shoulders to take it further, as we are now able because of the keys they gave us, we will start to get into how to take language apart. What is the twilight language? What is bird language? What is taking words apart phonetically? What is all that? Well, those are the next keys that are about to drop to unmask the inverse brotherhood of darkness that's making a run at our world. There it is, hour one of 254. Join us at crow777radio.com for the second hour with Michael A. Hoffman II. Cheers.
enemies of knowing. <laughs>